thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. For the last two chapters, Paul has been defending his uh, calling as an apostle, and he's doing this for two main reasons. The first reason is because there's a group there in Corinth uh, who did not believe that Paul had apostolic authority, that he was called by God uh, to that. But the second reason was even more significant. This group that had rejected Paul's calling as an apostle had started following false apostles, those who were teaching lies, those who were leading the Corinthians in a way that was unbiblical. And so Paul wants to, you know, defend his apostleship to not only reveal that, yes, he's truly an apostle, but also to get these Corinthians from uh, following these false doctrines and these false apostles. But as we noted last week, you know, Paul doesn't like to focus on himself. He's not, you know, taking pleasure in having to talk about his credentials, talking about his apostolic authority. You know, this isn't something he wants to do. He uses terms like foolish and other things because he realizes, you know what? I would much rather be focusing on Jesus. I'd much rather be talking about him. But for your sake, I'm willing to do this because I recognize that you guys need to understand my apostolic authority so that you'll Stop following these false apostles. And as we come here to chapter 12, we noted last week that Paul, you know, he didn't take pleasure in talking about himself, but he did talk about all these things that he suffered for God. And now here in chapter 12, once again, Paul reluctantly is going to speak about something about himself. And it's going to be about this amazing revelation that he has of heaven. Now, one of the reasons that Paul shares about this heavenly revelation is because he wants the Corinthians to understand something that he received because of it. He received this thorn in the flesh. He received this weakness because of this amazing revelation that he had. And if you remember back in chapter 10, you know, this group of Corinthians, they despise Paul because they think, oh, you're so weak in appearance and you're so lowly physically. And so that they had this issue with him and he wants them to realize, you know, where this weakness is coming from, why he has this. But he's also going to share something about what God says to him. As he's dealing with this weakness, this thorn in his flesh, God shares something with Paul that's one of the most profound truths in Scripture. It's something that for me personally has impacted my life in a very deep way. And I think as we go through this uh, revelation that Paul brings and, and what God shares about his weakness, uh, there's just a lot of wonderful truth that we can learn as well. And so let's see what we can learn here from Chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says this, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So Paul starts off by saying, no, it's doubtless and not profitable for me to boast. Once again, Paul is bringing up these terms that says, you know what? I reluctantly talk about myself. I reluctantly bring these things up. I don't want to boast about me. I don't want me to be the focus, but I'm going to do it just like I did before because you guys need me to do it. And this time he says he's boasting in visions and revelations of the Lord. But what vision or revelation did Paul get? Verses uh, 2 through 4 tell us. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for man to utter. Now, notice something interesting here as Paul describes this experience. He does it in the third person instead of the first person. He doesn't say, I myself had this experience. He says, I I know a man who has had this experience. Now, this has made some to wonder, is Paul really speaking of himself here or is he speaking of someone else's revelation? But if we continue on, we get to verse 7 and 8 and we realize that Paul makes very clear he is speaking about his own experience, his own revelation. Revelation. And so the question is, well, then why do you at all speak in the third person? If this is your revelation, if this is your experience, then why speak like this of I knew a man and do it in the third person? Well, I think the important thing to remember, as Paul has been doing, he's been contrasting himself with these false apostles. And this spiritual experience, this revelation, is something that these false apostles would love to take glory in. They would love to exalt themselves with and say, oh, let me tell you how spiritual I am because I had this amazing revelation of heaven and I'm so spiritual and I'm so wonderful. And they would have loved to have used this to exalt themselves and to praise themselves and to help people think that they're so great and spiritual. And so Paul wants to be very clear and careful that as he speaks about this, that no glory is coming to him, that no exaltation is coming to him. Now, remember last chapter, Paul had no problem speaking in the first person when it came to suffering and what he suffered for the Lord. But now as it comes to this amazing revelation of heaven, he treads more carefully. He wants to make sure that no one misses the point here, that he's not trying to exalt himself. He's not trying to get people to glory in him. And so he actually goes out of his way to kind of use this third person idea to make sure that people aren't focused on him. And he says, you know, uh, this happened 14 years ago. Now, this is interesting because it seems that up to this point, Paul's never shared this revelation before. 14 years ago, he had it. And for 14 years, he's just kept it to himself. And it seems very clear he wishes he could just keep it to himself. He doesn't even want to share it now. He feels like he has to share it now because of where this group is at and the fact that they're following false apostles and they're rejecting his authority as an apostle. And so he feels like, I'm compelled now to share it, even though I really don't even want to have to talk about this. And he goes on to say, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So this revelation was so powerful and real for Paul. He's like, you know what? I don't know if I was actually taken there physically and saw all this right there physically, or if it was just kind of this vision that God showed me, whether I was there or not, I don't know. Because it was so real, it could have been either, but you know what? God knows. And that's not really the important part of whether I was there physically or whether it was a vision. The important part is, I saw this. I experienced this. So what was the revelation that Paul saw? Well, if you're expecting some amazing, detailed thing, you're going to be disappointed. He says, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for man to utter. Notice Paul describes this revelation as 
He was caught up into the third heaven and paradise. Now you read that and there's been different cults and different groups that have tried to claim, oh, there are three heavens because they just don't understand, you know, what words were used back in this uh, culture and the language back then. And so they had heaven used in three different ways uh, and they would just differentiate between these terms heaven by saying the first heaven, the second heaven, or the third heaven. Uh, the first heaven referred to the blue sky or the atmosphere within the earth. The second heaven spoke of the, the starry sky or the atmosphere beyond the earth. And then the third heaven spoke of the place where God ruled and reigned, where his throne was. It was the term that when we say heaven, that's what we're referring to. We think of this is where God dwells. But for them, if I were to say heaven, they would say, well, which one? Uh, and so Paul makes very clear the third one, the one where God rules and reigns. And so he's just wanting to specify to his readers, when I'm talking about this revelation, I'm talking about a revelation of heaven, of God's throne, of God's dwelling place. That's what he wants them to understand that he's referring to. Now, Paul doesn't really tell us much of anything about this revelation. He doesn't tell us anything at all that he saw. You know, and there's things where, you know, we come to the scriptures and we're thinking, man, I wish that at this point there would have been more detail. I wish Paul would have given us just some little inkling of things that he saw. But obviously God chose not to inspire him to share that. And that's really not his point in what he's doing anyway. So he doesn't say what he saw And when it comes to what he heard, he just says, they were inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, it's funny to me that there are many scholars who try to tell you what Paul heard because people think, well, well, what did he hear? Well, it's real clear. We don't know. They were words that were inexpressible. So, you know, he makes very clear, it's not for you to know what was heard. It was just amazing. Uh, and so, you know, something good when it comes to Bible study is when the Bible is silent, so should we be. Don't try to make the Bible say something when the Bible is not saying something. If God thought we needed to hear it, he would declare it to us. If God felt we didn't need to hear it, then we should just be content with the reality that, you know what, when we get to heaven, we can discover some of these things that we'd like to know. But we're not told of what was said. So Paul, he's boasting in this revelation, but I want you to kind of notice that this is an odd boast. I mean, when you think of people who boast, you probably wouldn't put them into this category because notice, first of all, he speaks in the third person instead of the first person because he doesn't want the focus to be on himself. That's not typical in boasting. Usually boasting is like, oh, look at how great I am. Everybody look at me. Look at the wonderful things I've seen. Look at the wonderful things I've done. Look at the wonderful things I saw. But he also doesn't, um, he waits 14 years to share anything. He doesn't tell them anything about the revelation. He doesn't say what he saw. He doesn't say what he heard. And he does it reluctantly. This is definitely not the normal way you would boast in something. But once again, Paul is being very careful here because he's contrasting himself with these false apostles who would have loved to take in this opportunity to boast in themselves. And Paul is careful not to do that. He goes on to say in verse 5 and 6, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For I, though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. 
You know, Paul didn't like boasting at all. The only thing that he was really willing to boast in were his infirmities, which he talked about last week. All the ways in which he suffered for Jesus, he was willing to declare that, but he does not want to boast in this revelation. He actually says, though I might desire to boast, I won't be a fool. And in this statement, once again, we see this contrast between himself and these false apostles who were being very foolish in the fact that they constantly boasted in themselves. They constantly boasted about themselves and their achievements and how great they were. Where Paul makes very clear, and we see it through his life and his writings, the one he always boasts in is the Lord Jesus. And then that should be the one we boast in, not in ourselves. But he doesn't want to be foolish. But there's another reason, not just because it's foolish to do this, that he chooses not to boast. And I think this is something very important for us to note. Uh, he wants not to boast because he didn't want anyone to think of him above what they saw him to be or heard from him. Now, this is interesting because, remember, these people... They already have a negative low view of Paul, especially physically. You're weak. You're lowly. Remember they said that his speech was contemptible. I mean, they didn't have much of a, a good, uh, perspective on him. And then even though Paul knew this is how they thought of him, he says, you know what? I don't want you to think of me above what you see me to be or hear from me. Well, why? Why would Paul not want them to think above these things? Why wouldn't he want them to, um, why wouldn't he want to boast in his infirmities? And why wouldn't he want to boast in uh, this amazing revelation? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. lest I be exalted above measure. Paul's revelation of heaven, what he saw, what he heard, I mean, I can't even imagine how impressive that must have been. I mean, imagine getting the privilege of seeing the throne of God, of seeing these creatures around worshiping every day, holy, holy, holy. I mean, imagine the amazing experience that would be to get to perceive that and see that. It would have easily been something that saying, man, I've gotten to see something. I have the privilege of seeing something that no one else has. Ooh, I'm pretty special. It would be easy to, as Paul says, be exalted above measure. It'd be easy to get to a place where you get prideful, where you think, man, God hasn't allowed anyone else this privilege. God hasn't allowed anyone else to see this. Oh, wow, I am so special. And all of a sudden, pride could well up. This is what Paul doesn't want. He doesn't want the Corinthians to think above what he is. He doesn't want them to hear about this revelation and to exalt him to a place that he doesn't belong because Paul recognizes something. He was susceptible to pride, just like you and I. You know, we look at Paul's life and he's a pretty humble guy and sometimes we just think, wow, he's not susceptible to it. But no, he realizes, yes, I am. I don't want you guys praising me. I don't want you guys thinking of me above what you should because that will cause me to deal with an issue of pride. That will cause me to think higher of myself than I should. He recognized, I'm going to do what I can to keep you from thinking this way of me because I don't want you to. Because I don't want to respond with pride. Matthew Poole, a great commentator, said this about pride. 
The best of God's people have in them a root of pride or a disposition to be exalted above measure upon their receipt of favors from God, not common to others. You know, each one of us is susceptible to pride. And because of that, we need to be very careful. We need to be careful about what we say about ourselves, how we boast about ourselves, things that we do. You know, uh, even if we're just doing something for the Lord and people say things that really aren't accurate and they exalt us, we got to be careful with what we do with that because each one of us are susceptible to getting to a place where we get prideful. And that is always something that is very problematic So Paul realizes, hey, I'm susceptible to this, but there's someone who knew even more of Paul's weaknesses, of, of Paul's susceptibility to pride, and that was God himself. And so to prevent Paul from being exalted above measure, to prevent him from becoming prideful, God does something to Paul. He gives Paul a thorn in the flesh. Now, we're not told exactly what fleshly problem God gave to Paul to protect him from being prideful, but you know what? We are told the cause, and the cause of this thorn in the flesh is quite interesting. We're told that a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet Paul. Now, this term buffet actually means to beat on, and so this is what happened. that This messenger of Satan was sent to, to beat up on Paul. This is his thorn in the flesh. Now, now, this is interesting because God has done this in order to protect Paul from being prideful. And so what God does is he allows this messenger of Satan to do this. Now, Satan, I'm sure, was just chomping at the bits, always wanting to bring destruction and hurt to Paul's life. And here in this instance, Paul sa- God says to, you know what, I'm going to let you go and do some work on Paul. Now, this is interesting. If you've read the book of Job, This is a story that has a similar uh, thing that happens. God is bragging to Satan about Job, about how righteous he is, about how he follows God, how he's so obedient to God. And Satan says, well, well, what do you expect? Look at how much you bless him. I mean, you've blessed him in so many ways. Of course he's going to follow you. You let me at him and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, fine, Satan. You can go at Job, but you can't kill him. And so he does. He goes after Job. He kills his family. He kills his servants. Uh, all sorts of things happen. He gives Job's boils all over his body. And we're told that through all of this, Job does not curse God. But, but God had to give Satan this permission in order to, you know, have at Job. And here we're told that God gives permission here to this messenger of Satan to buffet Paul. And it's for Paul's benefit. It's to keep Paul, after he has seen this amazing revelation of heaven, to keep him from getting prideful. And so he's given this thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know how this manifested itself. You know, there are different thoughts about this. Once again, the Bible doesn't give us enough detail to know, but it seems from what Paul said that it was physically manifested, that it was something that people could see, that it was an awareness of his weakness that demonstrated itself physically. And I think this is important to note because the Corinthians, they got a problem with Paul. Man, you're so weak. Your your physical appearance is so lowly. You got all these infirmities. And Paul is saying, hey, you guys need to know one of the reasons I have this physical weakness 
is because God has given me this thorn in the flesh. And it's not because of some sin in my life. It's because of this amazing revelation that I saw. And to keep me from being prideful, God has done this to me. And so this is one of the reasons you see the weak Paul. God's done this to keep me humble. He's done this to help me not to become prideful. Well, Paul's now going to reveal how he first responded to receiving this thorn in the flesh. And he's also going to reveal how God responds to him. And God's response to him is one of the most significant portions, not only of this chapter, but of the scriptures as a whole, verses 8 through 10. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. After receiving this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan who's beaten on Paul, Paul did what he challenged his readers to do. In many letters that he wrote, he came to God in prayer. He brought this need to the Lord in prayer. He pleaded with the Lord. And what is it that he asked? Let this depart from me. You know, I think sometimes we look at Paul's life and we see all the suffering that he went through and we have this kind of concept that, man, Paul was a masochist. He really loved to suffer. No, he did not. He didn't want to suffer. He was just willing to suffer. And he did what we do. When he faced this suffering, the first thing he does is, Lord, take it from me. Lord, let it depart from me. I don't want to have to go through this. That's not my desire. He prays that once. He prays that twice. He prays that three times. And I'm sure the first time he just thought, you know what? Hey, this is fine. I'll just bring it to the Lord. God will deal with it and we'll move on. Praise, nothing happens. Oh, man, this must be a really difficult thing. I'll bring it to the Lord again. Praise a second time. Nothing happens. Well, that's strange. All right, God, praise a third time and still nothing happens. God doesn't do what he's asked him to do. You know, I'm sure all of us have been in a place where we seek God, where we pray to God, where we ask him to take away a burden in our life. But God responds to Paul in a way that Paul, I'm sure, wasn't expecting or wanting. He does not remove this burden. He does not answer Paul's request. Ultimately, he says no to Paul's request. Instead of taking the burden away, God says, you know what, Paul? I'm going to give you the strength to bear it. I'm going to give you the strength to endure it. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Warren Wearsby, a great pastor and commentator, shares some great truth about this verse. He says this, God did, God did not give Paul any explanations. Instead, he gave him a promise. My grace is sufficient for you. We do not live on explanations. We live on promises. Our feelings change, but God's promises never change. Promises generate faith, and faith strengthens hope. Paul claimed God's promise and drew on the grace that was offered to him. This turned seeming tragedy into triumph. God did not change the situation by removing the affliction. He changed it by adding a new ingredient, grace. 
I love this quote because I think it's so often the way in which God responds to our prayers. We always want the answer just to be, yes, I'll do whatever you ask. But so often that's not the reality. We pray for things and often God says, no. And then we say, why? Give me an explanation, God. Tell me why you're not going to do this in my life. And oftentimes, like with Paul, God does not explain himself. Instead, he says, you know what? I'm just going to give you a promise to hold on to. I'm just going to give you a promise to trust in. I'm not going to explain it. And many times it's probably because we couldn't fully grasp it anyway, because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He knows so much more than us. And so instead of explaining, he says, here's a promise. Trust in it. Hold on to it. Well, the promise that he gives Paul is the same promise he so often gives to us. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God wants Paul and us to understand two very important things. The first is God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor is sufficient. It's more than enough to meet the needs that we have. You know, Paul was desperate in his desire to find relief from this burden. And there's two ways to receive relief. Relief can come by removing the load, or relief can come by strengthening the person who has the load upon them. And God said, you know what, Paul, I know you want me to remove the load to give you relief, but I'm going to relieve you in a different way. I'm going to give you the strength to continue to deal with the burden that you face. Instead of taking away the thorn from Paul, God strengthened Paul under it. Now to do this, Paul needed to understand something. Paul needed to believe something, that God's grace was truly sufficient for him with this burden, with this thorn in the flesh that he has. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about the sufficiency of God's grace. It is easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. Believer, it is now that grace is sufficient. Even at this moment, it is enough for you. Something that I want you to make sure you don't leave here this morning without holding on to and understanding and putting into practice is that God's grace is enough for you in whatever you're dealing with right now. It's not just that grace was sufficient in the past or will be sufficient in the future, that it's sufficient for what you're dealing with in the present. Right now, God can give you all you need to get through whatever difficulty you face, whatever weakness you have, His grace is sufficient. You know, oftentimes we struggle with believing that God's grace is sufficient for us, You know, there have been many difficulties in my life where, you know, I face them, there's weaknesses that I've had, and as I came to a point of, you know, recognizing and seeing that, I honestly said, you know what, you can't get me through this, God. Your grace isn't sufficient for this. Look at how big this situation is, or look at how, you know, my weakness just keeps me from it. I concluded that God couldn't do it. You know, and we come to those conclusions, it's really such a foolish conclusion when you think about, who God is, when you think about the resources that he has at his disposal to give to us. Alan Redpath, a great pastor and commentator, he shares this very important truth about the sufficiency of God's grace. Do you see the humor 
of the situation, God's grace, me, his grace is sufficient for little me. How absurd to think that it could ever be any different. As if a little fish could swim in the ocean in fear lest it might drink it dry. The grace of our crucified, risen, exalted, triumphant Savior, the Lord of all glory, is surely sufficient for me. Do you not think it is rather modest of the Lord to say sufficient? And when you think about it, it's just kind of so silly of us to ever think that what God has isn't enough. That what God can give isn't enough. That God's strength isn't enough. That what God has to offer isn't enough. No, it is more than enough. It is sufficient. He can get us through anything. Now, our struggle is not just in the fact that sometimes we don't believe God's grace is sufficient. We also have another struggle. And that struggle is that we often don't believe that we and ourselves are insufficient. This is a huge obstacle because so often when we don't recognize our own insufficiency, it causes us to depend on ourselves. It causes us to trust in our own strength and our own power. And we don't recognize the truth that we are insufficient for what's coming our way. We are insufficient to deal with the struggles and the issues that life brings. And this is why we need to understand the second thing that Paul reveals here in verse 9, and that is God's strength is made perfect in weakness. God's all-powerful strength is made perfect in our weakness, in our inabilities, in the things that we struggle with. The strength of God is made perfect in that. We need to understand we won't, if we won't seek God's strength, We're not going to seek it until we know and recognize our own weakness. We're not going to look to God's sufficiency until we recognize our own insufficiency. It's only when you come to that place where you realize, you know what, I'm weak. I have plenty of weaknesses. I have plenty of insufficiencies that I realize I need God's strength. I need God's sufficiency because in and of myself, I can't do it. You see, the reality is that we are weak. And this world tells us that is such a horrible thing to be. Oh, weakness, you don't want that. But you know what? It's not a horrible thing. Actually, it's something that is very important for us as believers to recognize that we have. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about God's strength being made perfect in our weakness. Great tribulations bring out the great strength of God. If you never feel inward conflicts and sinking of soul, you do not know much of the upholding power of God. But if you go down, down into the depths of soul anguish till the deep threatens to utter her, to shut her mouth upon you, and then the Lord rides upon a cherub and does fly, yea, ride upon the wings of the wind and delivers your soul and catches you away to the third heaven of delight, then you perceive the majesty of divine grace. Oh, there must be the weakness of man felt recognized and mourned over or else the strength of the son of God will never be perfected in us. Something that I have learned through my Christian life, and it's taken a, a long time to really grasp it and live it, is that when I am strong, the areas where I am strongest is actually the areas where I'm weakest. And those areas where I'm weakest are actually the areas 
where I have the greatest strength. And the reason because of that is because, you know, where I'm strong, I have a tendency, and maybe you do as well, to depend on myself. Oh God, I got this. You know, this is my strength. This is where I'm good. You know, this is where I excel. I can handle this thing on my own because, you know, this is where I'm strong. And so I don't depend on God. I don't allow his strength to come into my life because I think I can take care of it myself. And then I find that it's not enough and I'm weak. But you know, those areas where I'm weak, I'm very aware of. And I say, Lord, there's no way in this area could I ever accomplish this. There's no way in this area could I ever overcome this. And so in those areas of weakness, I find true strength because I'm so much quicker to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Lord, I need your strength. Lord, I am insufficient here. Give me your sufficiency. And because of that, I'm stronger in the areas that I'm weak because I'm not relying upon myself. I'm relying upon the strength of the Lord. You know, I think something important for us to realize, and I still don't know if I fully believe this in living it out, is that we are weak in every area. Without the Lord, we're just weak, period. I think so often we convince ourselves of how strong we are, but we need to recognize in and of ourselves, throughout every area of our life, we are truly weak. We do not have what we need. We must rely upon the strength of God in every area of our life. And you know what? The thought that I can do it on my own, the thought that I don't need God, the thought that I'm strong enough here, those thoughts just go completely against what the Word of God teaches, what Jesus clearly reveals to us in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You know, hopefully as Christians, we say, you know what, I want to accomplish things for God. I want to bear godly fruits for Jesus' sake. And Jesus makes very clear, the only way that's ever going to happen is if you abide in me, you trust in me, you're relying upon me. Because without me, you can do nothing. Notice he doesn't say without me, you can do some things, but not most things. He says, no, no, without me, nothing. And that's that word that for so much of my life I didn't believe. Well, yeah, God, I can't do some things. Obviously, I need your help in these big areas. But these small areas, I can take care of those. No, without me, you can do nothing. But there's the opposite that's true as well. Philippians 4.13 tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without Christ, I can't do anything, but with him, I can accomplish anything. I can deal with anything. I can overcome anything because of his strength, not mine. Because of his power, not mine. He is capable of helping me through whatever difficulty I face, whatever weakness I have. This is something that Paul came to understand, and that's why he says this in verse 9 and 10. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The reason Paul didn't want this group to think above what he really was, to think more highly of himself than he really was, why he didn't boast in this revelation is because he came to realize that in his weakness and infirmities, 
the power of Christ rested upon him. When he was weak, that's when he was truly strong. You know, Paul didn't care if they saw his weaknesses because he's, you know what? What you're going to see is the strength of the Lord. Yes, I am weak and I'm frail and I have these problems, but you know what? Through this, God's strength is going to be manifested in my life. So Paul wasn't bothered. He actually wanted them to see his weakness because he knew it would point them to the strength of Christ. Alexander McLaren, a great Scottish pastor and commentator, he says this concerning our weakness in God's strength. Ministers of the gospel especially should banish all thoughts of their own cleverness, intellectual ability, culture, sufficiency for their work, and learn that only when they are emptied can they be filled. And only when they know themselves to be nothing are they ready for God's work, for God to work through them. You know, many of us, and I used to be one of them, think that Christian maturity comes when we're somewhat independent of God. When we get to that place where you think, you know, I don't need God day by day and moment by moment because I'm now mature and I can kind of handle these things myself and I can deal with these things on my own. And we think, well, now I'm really mature. That's not Christian maturity. I mean, God went out of his way to put Paul in a place of complete dependence on his grace and on his strength every day. And that's where we need to be. True maturity as Christians is a recognition of your weakness and a dependence on God's strength, a recognition that you are insufficient and a dependence on God's sufficiency. That is what helps us. That is what is maturity. Well, now Paul recognizes his response in verse 10 is, therefore I take pleasure Notice that word, pleasure, and notice the list. And I want you to think if you would take pleasure in any of these things. In my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. These aren't things that we would say, oh, we take pleasure. Yes, I love this stuff. And Paul didn't at first either, because remember he said, Lord, remove it from me. But there's been a change in his view of these things. And I want you to note that because his perspective has changed. Paul now accepts this thorn in the flesh because he realizes what it ultimately does. It's God's strength for him. And so, you know, at first it was like, remove it, get rid of it, I don't want it. And now I take pleasure in this because now these things bring me to a place of recognition of my weakness and help me depend upon God's strength. And it's that what makes me truly strong. And so the perspective change all of a sudden now he sees something that he used to despise and want rid of as something he takes pleasure in and recognizes the need it is in his life. And how important it is for us to have that perspective change. So often we're so upset with God of why would he allow this difficulty or this struggle or this weakness or whatever it may be in our life. And we often miss the reality that, whoa, what is God doing through this? Maybe he's trying to humble us. Maybe he's trying to bring us to a place of recognition that where we are weak, he is strong and we're not dependent on him. And so he's allowing this into our life. And so that we would come to a place of dependence and come to a place where we would fully rely upon him. And then then we would see, wow, what I saw as a negative is actually a positive because what God is able to do through it, how God is able to work in it. It's so important for you and I to understand that we are in complete need of God. But oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't see that, we don't recognize that, we don't believe that. 
And the thing that helps us to see our need for God the most is when we're in difficult situations. When our weakness is very apparent, all of a sudden then it's like, Lord, I need you. And he's like, yeah, you always do. I'm glad that you see it here. And hopefully you'll start to see it in other areas of your life as well. Paul got to a place where he said these great words that we should be able to say as well. When I am weak, then I am truly strong. You know, David Guzik, a great pastor and commentator, he says this about what made Paul strong. Think about this man, Paul. Was he a weak or strong man? The man who traveled the ancient world spreading the gospel of Jesus despite the fiercest persecution, who endured shipwrecks and imprisonments, who preached to kings and slaves, who established strong churches and trained up leaders, was not a weak man. In light of his life and accomplishments, we would say that Paul was a very strong man. But he was only strong because he knew his weaknesses and looked outside of himself for the strength of God's grace. If we want lives of such strength, we also must understand and admit our weakness and look to God alone for the grace that will strengthen us for any task. It was the grace-filled Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's strength, the thing that we see so often in the book of Acts and all this, where we would look at his life and say, here's a strong man. It wasn't in himself. His strength came because he was weak and depended on the strength of God. And the strength of God is what made Paul strong. Paul in himself was definitely weak, but his weakness pointed him to his strength. Paul's going to share a few final thoughts here in verses 11 through 13, and then we're going to close. I become a fool in boasting, for you have compelled me. For I thought to have been commended by you, for in nothing I was behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Once again, Paul is reiterating, and he says it a lot because it means a lot to him, that he does not like to have to boast in himself, that he does not want to do it. And the ultimate reason is them. They're the ones who have compelled him that he feels like he has to now do this. And he says, you know what, you guys should have been commending me, but instead you've been criticizing me because you don't believe in my apostolic authority. But he wants them to remember something. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among them in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. If you remember from the book of Acts, when Paul came into Corinth, he didn't just preach the gospel. It was accompanied with miraculous signs. People were healed. Uh, demons were cast out. God used Paul in these miraculous ways. And he's saying, surely that alone is evidence that God has called me into this apostolic authority. He used me in these supernatural ways. Don't forget that. But he finishes by saying, for what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Well, saying, so you know the only difference between how I treated you guys and other churches is I asked other churches to help support me and I didn't ask you guys to. I took money from other churches and I didn't take any money for you. Forgive me from this for this wrong. Once again, Paul is being sarcastic here. He knows he didn't wrong them at all by not taking money from them, but it seems like they have an issue with it. Hey, I worked here, and I supported myself, and I served you free of charge. That's the only difference between what I did for you and what I did for these other churches. Alan Redpath shares an important thought that will transition us into communion. 
Could anyone on earth be more meek than the Son of God to be hung on the cross, hung in our place, that He might redeem us from our sins? As that point of absolute weakness was met by the mighty power of God as He raised Him from the dead, I wonder if the pressure of the thorn in Paul's life was a reminder of the power of the cross. You know, if we're in the place where we think, you know what, is God's grace sufficient? Is God's power enough? Can God get me through the circumstances of my life? I want you to look to the cross. Because it's at the cross where we should be confident that God loves us, that God has the power to change us, that God can give us all we need. His grace is sufficient. You know, it's been said When you come to the point in your life where Jesus is all you have, you come to realize that Jesus is all you need. And maybe you have come to that point where you're thinking, I don't have anything but Jesus. Well, you know what? That's all you need. That's all you need to get through the struggles, to get through the hardships, to get through the weakness. If you have made a choice to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to ask for His forgiveness, to ask Him to come into your life, then guess what? You have all you need to face what this world throws at you, the struggles and the difficulties. We're going to close this morning, as we do the first Sunday of every month, just remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on up. And This is an open communion, meaning if you have made a choice to accept Jesus as your Savior, we encourage you to partake of this communion with us. Uh, if you've never made a choice to do that, then uh, just allow the elements to pass by. And we're just going to hold on to them as we get them. Uh, it's going to be passed out as the worship team sings a song, and, and then we will uh, together take it. But I just want to, as we prepare our heart for this, uh, a poem was written by a woman named Annie Johnson Flint. She was an invalid. Her parents died. Her sister was also an invalid. And she was stuck uh, in a wheelchair trying to take care of a sister in a wheelchair. She had a horrible life. But she comes to God. She gets saved. And she writes a beautiful poem that she titled, He Giveth More Grace. And I want to read that as we just kind of prepare our hearts for communion. It says this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he added his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. The greatest thing that we've been given is Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. And let's just prepare ourselves as we take time to remember that.